Okay, as Mike said, Happy New Year, everybody. Feels that way, doesn't it, as we kind of close the door on our summer vacations and begin to see new things happening, all the young kids going off to school, back to school. You know, in suburbia, September really does feel like the beginning of the year. So many new things starting, even in here in the life of the church, all our programs. I hope you read through your bulletin, take it home, and take advantage of all the new things that are going to be happening. And as we start a new year, you know, you always want to start off on the right foot. For kids, that means going to a new classroom, maybe that new school, that new teacher, uh, college freshmen leaving home for the first time. You know, there can be some anxiety about what that's going to be like. Maybe you're starting a new job or you've got a new schedule or some new goals for your life. Maybe you're an empty nester for the very first time and there's this void that you're going to have to deal with. Beginnings are great. But there can also be just a little stress as you launch into brand new territory. You know, our purpose as a church is wrapped around one core concept, one idea. We want to introduce people to Jesus Christ to help folks understand who he is in all his fullness, encourage men and women and boys and girls to make their own new beginning through having faith in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And then help people live each day kind of walking with Jesus uh, becoming more and more like him and how we treat people, how we think about ourselves, how we relate to the world around us. And in this way, we sort of echo the Apostle John, what he said was the purpose when he wrote his gospel. He said in chapter 20, verse 30, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which were not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That by believing, you might have life in his name. Jesus called it abundant life or, or life in all its fullness. And that's what we're all about. That's what the Gospels are all about. That's why it always kind of strikes me as odd the way the Apostle John actually started his biography of Jesus by telling one of a kind of a strange miracle, a hidden miracle that at first glance it just doesn't seem to fit. It seems out of place. I mean, if I was in charge of writing the Gospels, I'd start off with a bang. You know, I'd start off with some big miracle like the feeding of the 5,000, raising Lazarus from the dead, something spectacular, walking on water, something big. Why not start with something big? But Jesus didn't do that. And John faithfully records for us this odd way Jesus had his new beginning. Let's read it. It's in the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee, and Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine, and he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water, they knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside and he said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory 
and his disciples believed in him. Amen. This is God's word. This past week as I was preparing for this uh, message and thinking about weddings and all that kind of stuff, I started calculating how many weddings I've been involved with over the years, either as the officiant or just participating and attending. And it's over 150. That's a lot of rubber chicken, you know? So much variety in the styles of the weddings and the receptions and the ceremonies, but there's kind of one common characteristic that I think runs through them all. The people planning the wedding, they always feel overwhelmed by the preparations. Just stressed out by the details. So many details, so many lists, so many things to keep track of, so many people to try and please and coordinate. When you get to the actual wedding, their eyes just kind of glaze over. I'm sure you've seen that. And sometimes what's supposed to be the happiest day turns out to be just one big ball of stress. Especially if something goes wrong, you know, the cake tips over, it falls over, or Uncle Joe gets a little too obnoxious, or a fight breaks out among the bridesmaids, something like that. I think in some ways weddings can be a metaphor for life, and we're going to look at that a little bit more deeply as we unpack this story. At this point in the Gospels, Jesus doesn't have his full cadre of disciples. In chapter 1 of John's Gospel, we see Jesus as he's baptized in a region called Bethany. And then he gathers just a few of his first disciples, five of them. And then in chapter 2, we're told that he, they walk together with Jesus to the village in Cana. It's about a 60 to 65 mile walk, and it took them three days. So ladies, if you're doing women walking for women, you're in good company next week. They've been invited to the wedding, probably someone related to Jesus, because as I read, Jesus' mother Mary has some authority at the wedding to tell the servants what to do. Some scholars speculate it could have been a wedding for one of Jesus' younger brothers or a cousin. We don't know for sure, but it was definitely a family affair. And we have to understand that ancient Middle Eastern weddings were very different from the kind of weddings we have today in the States. In Western weddings, the bride is the centerpiece, right? The bride is the focus. The triumphant moment of the wedding is when the bride enters. The whole congregation rises to honor her as she enters in her glory and her beauty. Every eye is focused on her. Ancient Middle Eastern weddings were very different. The groom was prominent. The groom took center stage because he was paying for the whole thing. The groom sort of struts around like a peacock because it's his day. And the bride, quite frankly, was sort of an afterthought. And the wedding celebration would go on three, four, five days. And it wasn't just some drunken binge. It was more like this huge family reunion. All the relatives from all over the country would all come together. The in-laws, the outlaws, the whole kit and caboodle, you know. And they had to be fed. And there's got to be enough wine. And wine was just the common drink for all the meals. If you've ever been to the Louvre in Paris, you may have seen the, the painting of the wedding in Cana by Paolo Varenis which gives a sense of just how big the party was. It, takes up an entire, it would take up this entire room if you were to see it, and it goes into such detail. That's the kind of catering job, and in all those details of this wedding, somebody didn't order enough wine, and that was going to be a big problem because to run out of food or wine at such a big family or community gathering was really socially inexcusable. It would have brought tremendous shame upon the family and the groom especially because he was the ultimate host. It was a time of celebration, but this problem comes and Mary goes to Jesus and says, they have no more wine. Hospitality in the Middle East was a sacred duty. So nothing could have been more humiliating than this. Either they didn't estimate right or maybe they didn't have enough money. 
But the Jews of Jesus' day had a saying, without wine, there is no joy. So nothing was going to be more embarrassing to him. So Mary comes to Jesus with this problem, and you have to ask why. Up to this point, Jesus hasn't done any miracles. She knew her son. Maybe she'd seen him in situations at home. He was now the head of the household because Joseph had died years before. Maybe she'd seen Jesus handle emergencies or stressful situations, and they thought, well, if there's anybody who can figure this out, it's going to be Jesus, so I'm going to put it in his lap. Well, what's he going to do? There are no package stores around the corner. There's no wine cellar to go to. But maybe she thought, well, Jesus will come up with a solution. Obviously, there's more going on here than just that. It's possible that Mary had heard that Jesus had been baptized and the heavens had opened and God had anointed Jesus for his ministry. And so she thought, now's the time. We're given this little hint of this in Jesus' reply in verse 4 where he says, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Jesus in English sounds pretty abrupt with her, woman. Some people read that and think Jesus was being a little snippy with his mom, you know. Like if I was a kid and I called my mom woman, I better duck, you know. <laughs> That's not it. Woman here is an endearing term. It's the same word Caesar Augustus used of the love of his life, Cleopatra. It's the same word Jesus used when he was dying on the cross and he gave his mother Mary into the care of the disciple John. John 19, 26. He says, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. So Jesus wasn't being a smart aleck. He was saying, my hour has not yet come. Saying, like Mary, you know, you may have heard about the baptism. You may have heard that God spoke, this is my beloved son. So the expectations and the dreams of Jesus being revealed as the Messiah, as she had been promised when, he was, when she first encountered the angel, when Jesus was impregnated into her. And maybe she's thinking, now's the time. Now's the time for him to act. Now my son is beginning to fulfill his destiny. And now's the time for him to do this new thing and do it big. Perhaps like many people, she misunderstood Jesus' essential calling and maybe expected him to instantly claim the throne of David and drive out the Roman oppressors. Mary expected this to happen, and now was as good a time as any. But Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. And that's just a Hebrew way of saying, you don't really understand what this is all about, and that what I'm going to do, it's not even going to accomplish the things that you think it's going to accomplish. It's not going to usher in this new political era. It's not even going to persuade the people of Israel that I am the Messiah. Miracles are part of the plan. Miracles will be performed. But guess what? It's not going to convince everybody. Mary has sort of this checklist in her mind of what she thinks Jesus should do, and Jesus says none of the above. It's going to go a different way. It's coming, but not yet. Please leave things to me. I know this is the prayer of your heart, but you've got to trust me and you've got to trust my timing. Please be patient. My hour has not yet come. Several times later in the Gospel of John, Jesus uses this phrase because he gets pressured by the disciples to do the same thing, to, to come go public faster. And he says, my time has not yet come. It's not until chapter 12, the moment when he rides into Jerusalem on the donkey and the people are crying out hosannas and his enemies say, tell them to be quiet. And Jesus finally says, my hour has come. And if I silence their voices, the very stones would cry out. He is now ready to reveal himself as God's Messiah, but not as the conquering king, but as the suffering servant, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the Lamb who then rises from the dead and ascends into heaven in victory over the grave. But it's not time yet 
for Jesus to fully reveal himself. And what I love, though, is that that doesn't stop Jesus from doing something. He's not ready to go public, but he also cares about this family and the humiliation that they might experience. He cares by the fact that they're kind of overwhelmed by what's going on. He doesn't want them to be shamed. Nearby, there are these six stone jars. The jars are filled with water. They're used for two things. First, they're used for foot washing. You know, as guests would arrive from the dusty streets of Cana, it's not polite to bring your filthy feet into somebody's house, and so the servants would use that water to clean their feet. Not a fun job. I mean, it's kind of like just toe jam water. You know, it's kind of stinky. You may remember how Jesus washed his disciples' feet at the Last Supper because there were no servants to do that humble job. And Jesus used that as a teachable moment about servant leadership, foot washing. The second way the water was used is just hand cleansing. After each course of the meal, the servants would come around and just pour water over their hands. It was part of their ceremonial cleanliness before God and just a good way to get fried chicken off your fingers, I think. Each of these jars could hold up to 30 gallons. So that's just some little water bottle, 180 gallons of wine. Jesus asked the servants to fill them to the brim. And what I love here is just the simplicity of Jesus. It's so remarkable how easily, how quietly, with dignity, this miracle was done. There's no drawing attention to himself or even that there's a problem. There are no, there's no hocus-pocus, no prayers, no hysterical shouting, no rebuking of the devil, no laying out of hands, none of that. This miracle is so casual. Jesus never even touches the water jars, never even tastes what's inside. Just with simple dignity, he willed it to happen, and the water became wine. The only ones who knew what had transpired were the servants and his disciples. So simply and quietly, Jesus demonstrates his remarkable power over nature. Now, some people stumble over the idea of miracles in the Bible, but if God is the creator of all things, then it's a small thing for him to use what he's created for his own purposes. I mean, God's the one who designed the universe. He understands how it works better than we do. He knows how to use the natural order. He created the vines and the soil and the process of fermentation itself. Water to wine, that's like nothing to the guy who created one sextillion stars. That's a one followed by 21 zeros. That's the estimate of the number of stars in our universe, one sextillion. If Jesus was the author of creation, hey, water to wine is child's play. If that's an issue for you, I encourage you to read C.S. Lewis's book, Miracles. It's probably the best discussion of the topic. So then Jesus tells the servants to take a ladleful and to take it to the, the master of the banquet, the steward, the guy who's the MC of the party to get his approval. Now, who gets that job? Who gets to take foot washing water to the boss, you know? I mean, obviously, he's going to be the low man on the totem pole. And so all the servants are probably off to the side, and they're watching this poor schlub as he hands the ladle nervously to his boss. They watch him as the steward slowly brings the ladle to his lips, watch him start to drink it. I think they got to be laughing to themselves because their boss is drinking toe jam water, you know? But then the expression on the boss's face changes. It lights up. His eyes go wide, and he says, this is the best wine I've ever tasted. He slaps the groom on the back and says, you sly dog. Most people put out the good stuff first and then later bring out the cheap stuff, but you have saved the best for last. And, of course, the groom has no idea what he's talking about, but he's smart enough to keep his mouth shut and take credit for it. And then the gospel writer, John, adds just this little note of commentary as to the why. 
why this story is so important. Verse 11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of his signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. The purpose of this miracle was to reveal just a little bit of his divine glory so that his new disciples would say, hey, we made a good decision here. It was confirmation that they had made the right decision in choosing to follow Jesus. This miracle revealed what Jesus does in life. He brings transformation. He takes what is ordinary and he turns it into something special. He takes what is ordinary and he turns it into something special. Not only does Jesus make foot washing water into wine, he makes it the very best wine. No boons foreign from him. Quality. And that's what Jesus does in the human heart. He takes what is ordinary and he turns it into something special. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and life in all its fullness. So when he enters the human heart, he changes it. His desire is to produce a quality of life in us that we can't produce on our own. Because life without Christ can be dull and tasteless without meaning or purpose. And Jesus injects himself into our hearts and all of a sudden we recognize our deep need for him. His forgiveness, it changes us. It changes us as we yield to him as we begin to see him in all his fullness as our Lord and Savior, changes us because we begin to realize our value. Our, we belong to him, and so a new quality of life gets introduced to us when we're in touch with Jesus. Not just some historical figure, but our, our friend and our Savior now. You see, a sad, negative Christian is sort of a contradiction in terms. Jesus enters into life, and he enlarges our capacity for life enlarges our capacity to enjoy life, to appreciate it. Now, you may be walking through some deep stuff right now. Maybe you've got some tough decisions ahead. Maybe this week does not look so happy for you. Jesus can touch your heart and life with the same fullness that he touched those ordinary jars of water. He wants you to be the wine. He wants you to be the wine that kind of can express his fullness and his glory to the world. You see, if Jesus really is, as the Apostle Paul said, the visible expression of the invisible God, then it's significant that Jesus did his first miracle at such a happy celebration. One commentator I read points out the significance of the six water jars. Why six? He could have done four. He could have done 20. Why six? Well, it was Jesus and five disciples. And it's possible that they arrived at this wedding because of their three-day journey. They arrived empty-handed. No gift for the bride and the groom. And in that time, that would have been a major faux pas as well to arrive empty-handed. And it may have been as though Jesus said to his disciples, don't worry, guys, I got this. Six jars of wine, each 30 gallons. That's a lot of wine. And it's really good wine. It was probably the most lavish gift that anybody could have brought to the wedding because the wine was expensive. And God wants us to celebrate life and all good things. He's not some great killjoy in the sky. He's the God who takes ordinary things and makes them special. And he can do that for each one of us as we give him a chance to move into all the different corners of our lives, the small things, the frustrating things, the challenging things, but also the good and happy and celebratory things. Jesus is fully involved with the party, fully involved with the people. He's not detached or, or disinterested or remote. He wants life to be happy and meaningful. He wants life to be a celebration. He's got the whole world in his hands, as the children's song goes, and you can trust him. 
And this bring me, brings me back to Mary's role in the story. And this is important for the many Roman Catholic friends and people that we encounter throughout the week. Often in Roman Catholicism, people talk about how they pray to Mary and they ask Mary to intercede for them and they don't really talk to Jesus. And we don't really think that's the right way to go. We don't think that that's really what the Bible teaches. Well, this is the only story in Scripture that really shows us much about the relationship between Mary and Jesus. And what does she tell the servants? What is Mary's advice? Do whatever Jesus tells you. She directs them to Jesus. Do whatever Jesus tells them. And that, that's good advice for all of us. That's good godly advice for every one of us. It's good godly advice to share with your Roman Catholic friends. Do what Jesus says, because that's essentially what it means to be a Christian. Simply do what he says, obey his lead, have the desire to, to follow his commands and to do what Jesus taught. This little story shows us Jesus as God's man, ruling over all of God's world. The one who has now dominion and authority over all the natural and the spiritual world, and he let this much of his glory out. The one who transforms life, the one who takes what is ordinary and turns it into something special. May you know him and encounter him this week. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just thank you for this story because it gives us hope about our own ordinary lives. That as we open our hearts to you, you come in, you inject yourself, your life into us, and that's how we receive fullness of life. Help us to be people who celebrate all the good things that you, you're doing, all the good things of the world. Our world is so negative. Help us to be Christians who celebrate life, and in doing so, we become the wine that shares your glory with the world. We thank you now in Christ's name. Amen.